you know, I have a theory which uh, which <laughs> I developed when I was writing Tilting at Windmills that anything is a sport if you if you cross the Rubicon and make the decision to decide it is a sport and <laughs> and uh, you know and uh, and surround it with the uh, apparatus of commentary and scoring yeah. and competition. And uh, so I have no problem with any of these newfangled sports that appear in the Olympics. And actually, you only have to watch them for two, three minutes. And you're, you're going, look, and like the jargon around the skateboarding. At first, it's quite funny, but then you sort of pick it up yourself, don't yeah. you? Oh, he's, he's alley-ooped it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Anyway, did you, have you been enjoying it? You must have been, you too. Nikki must have been. Oh, I'm absolutely loving it. Setting my alarm for 6 a.m. Um, no, it's great. Actually, I have to tell you one thing I have been enjoying, which is good because we're going to be talking about it later, but it's actually quite enjoying the boxing. I'm not really into boxing normally, but there's a British boxer called Benjamin Whitaker, yeah. who at this point is, I think, in line for the silver or gold medal. And he's just got this amazing ability to kind of duck and weave. And I keep one, I keep just watching him and I'm doing that movement while I'm watching, you know, kind of <laughs> yeah. weaving dust. It's a, yeah, yeah I lo- it's it's it's. Kind of, I've I've been loving the boxing too, and the rugby, obviously. Um, oh no, that just shouldn't be in there. I'm sorry, rugby should not be. Rugby in Rugby sevens Olympics. is great. It's brilliant. Oh no, rugby, golf, football, tennis, do one. I feel you might be right about the um the football. I can't really see the point of the football. But the rugby sevens is great, and also get get Fiji get to win a gold medal. That's got to be a good <laughs> That's thing. That's true. That's true. And there's been many decades worth of campaigning, which the International Olympic Committee refused to acknowledge. But really, come on, chess should be in the Olympics. <laughs> it should be. You're laughing, but it I agree should with be. You. It's a it's a sport. You use your brain. Yeah, you know, that's it's the brain sport. Do you know what we watched the Queen's Gambit? That was absolutely thrilling. It is <laughs> thrilling. It was. it was thrilling. So it's tense. And now over to Gabby with the chess. It's very tense. <laughs> Our regular listeners will be totally uh, amazed, shocked, bamboozled by this by this uh, <laughs> light-hearted chat. John, do you want to do you want to uh, explicate what's happening? We today? have a we have an, an edition of the podcast where it's just us, us three, and we we we've got a book that we've all all three of us have read, and uh, and I think all of us love, which is do the intro, which is do the intro. Come uh, on, I'm not normally on the podcast, so this is a treat for me too. But let's not let them know that there's Fine. no guest. Let's <laughs> just they can they can great can dawn on them as we go along. Right. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in the Californian city of Stockton, sometime in the 1950s. It's a grey day and the sun is sinking below the low flat skyline. It's a sad and run-down place full of dingy bars and walk-up hotels across the street. The dry wind, heavy with peat dust from the surrounding fields, blows leaves and papers along the gutter. We turn into the Harbour Inn and make for one of the empty stools at the bar. I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of Tilting at Windmills, How I Tried to Stop Worrying and Love Sport. <laughs> Well, I am. I it's am. true. It's a book. I love that book. Uh, and today, for the first time in 144 episodes, we have no guest, or rather, uh, uh, we, we're talking about a book, but we, we have no guest joining us. Uh, uh, or rather, we three are the guests, and um, we got together to discuss a book that uh, we... Well, as John was just saying, I think we all admire, but in the tradition of Batlisted, we've actually we 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 agree never to discuss <laughs> anything before we actually record. So I I don't I don't know what the other two are going to say, but let's I you know I'll think less of them if they don't admire it. So we'll we'll no see pressure. what happens. No pressure. Uh, the book is Fat City, the only novel by the American writer Leonard Gardner. It was first published by Farrah, Strauss, and Giroux in 1969 and acclaimed subsequently as one of the greatest boxing novels ever written, memorably adapted for the screen, uh, starring Stacey Keach and a very young Jeff Bridges by the director John Huston in 1972. Fat City is built around the parallel careers of two boxers, Billy Tully, aged 29, who is trying to come back from retirement, and Ernie Munger, an 18-year-old hopeful, 
who so impresses the out-of-conditioned Tully when they spar together that he suggests the boy present himself to Ruben Luna, his former trainer. The book charts their entwined trajectories in and outside the ring, Tully's battles with drink and loneliness, among his attempts to balance commitment to Faye, who he marries when she falls pregnant, with those to his career as a boxer. In the 53 years since it was first published, the intensity and realism of Gardner's portrait of American blue-collar life has won praise from writers as different as Joan Didion, Ross MacDonald, Raymond Carver, and Dennis Johnson, who described it as deep in the sorrow and beauty of human life. But let's not slope off to our seedy hotel rooms before asking the usual question. Andy, what have you been reading this week? Well, I tried to choose a book that I consider to be the very opposite of books. <laughs> <laughs> And so I've gone for <laughs> the opposite of boxing. <laughs> that should be the subtitle of this novel. So I've gone for a novel called The Hearing Trumpet by the surrealist painter and artist's muse, Leonora Carrington. It's believed this was written in the early 1960s, but no one's quite sure because as to so many things to do with Leonora Carrington's life, it's, it's, it's lost to history and her own myth-making. She was a very young muse to the Surrealists, specifically Max Ernst. And um, she published several volumes of short stories, which I've also read in the last few weeks, which were totally fascinating. They're all available at the moment in a book called Complete Stories, which is published by the Dorothy Project in the States. But they were available. I remember them in the 80s and 90s being published by Virago. Yeah. House of Fear is one one of those volumes, and there's another one called The Seventh Horse. She also wrote an essay about called Down Below, which is absolutely incredible about her incarceration um, in a in an insane asylum against her will. So if you can find those, read those. But this, The Hearing Trumpet, is her longest novel. Um, it's about a 92 year old woman called Marion Leatherby, um, and uh, we're going to hear. Uh, a little bit of it in a minute, read by the actress Sean Phillips, who uh, isn't quite as old as that, but is a veteran actor. The performance is absolutely wonderful and the casting is absolutely wonderful. So I just wanted to share with you the, the beginning of the novel. But it's so uh, still unusual to read a book about, written by an older woman, somebody so old, which is so strange and so full of comedy and also magic. I've just been reading David Keenan's novel, Monument Maker, uh, which is um, informed by all sorts of alchemic and magical ceremonies. And actually, Leonora Carrington's work is as well. Uh, it seems fair to say that all her work is informed by her status as a witch of some kind. So The Hearing Trumpet starts off as one kind of book and then rather like Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner goes somewhere totally <laughs> horrible and unexpected. Right. No spoilers. Anyway, I absolutely love this. If you, It's in print at the moment from Penguin. Um, it's got a really good uh, introduction by Ali Smith, which explains several things within the book. Also, you can totally see why Angela Carter loved Leonora Carrington's writing. They certainly have something in common. But here is the very beginning of the book, read by Sean Phillips, and this is available on the audiobook of The Hearing Trumpet. When Carmella gave me the present of a hearing trumpet, she may have foreseen some of the consequences. The trumpet was certainly a fine specimen of its kind, without being really modern. It was, however, exceptionally pretty, being encrusted with silver and mother-of-pearl motifs and grandly curved like a buffalo's horn. The aesthetic presence of this object was not its only quality. The hearing trumpet magnified sound to such a degree that ordinary conversation became quite audible, even to my ears. Here I must say that all my senses are by no means impaired by age. My sight is still excellent, although I use spectacles for reading, when I read, which I practically never do. True, rheumatics have bent my skeleton somewhat, this does not prevent me taking a walk in clement weather and sweeping my room once a week on Thursday, a form of exercise which is both useful and edifying. Here I may add that I consider that I am still a useful member of society 
and, I believe, still capable of being pleasant and amusing when the occasion seems fit. The fact that I have no teeth and never could wear dentures does not in any way discomfort me. I don't have to bite anybody, and there are all sorts of soft, edible foods easy to procure and digestible to the stomach. Mashed vegetables, chocolate, and bread dipped in warm water make the base of my simple diet. I never eat meat, as I think it is wrong to deprive animals of their life when they are so difficult to chew anyway. <laughs> that sounds brilliant. It's oh, it's so great. It's so enjoyable, so unusual. And uh, uh, yeah, so that's The Hearing Trumpet by Leonora Carrington, uh, The Antidote to Boxing. Not that you need an antidote, but anyway, John. What have you? Uh, I know what you've been reading, but come on. <laughs> well, I've pu punish me some more. <laughs> well, I've been reading. I, I have to say, this is not much to do with boxing, uh, although it is incendiary in many ways. Burning Man: The Ascent of T. H. Lawrence by Francis Wilson. Francis Wil Wil Wilson, wonderful, mm -hmm. wonderful biographer of Dorothy Wordsworth and Thomas De Quincey. And I, I guess this is a book she starts up by saying, you know, she kind of comes back to Lawrence. She says Lawrence has been kind of dumped by the academy you know he's been he was the first author to be cancelled uh, people aren't reading or studying him anymore i'm not sure whether that's entirely true but there's definitely <laughs> as we know the the legacy of dh lawrence is a controversial one i cancelled him <laughs> many years ago <laughs> this is oh, i just think this is one of the best literary biographies i've read in a very long time maybe ever um i am obviously partial to lawrence but like francis wilson i have sometimes struggle to communicate what it is about Lawrence that I find uh, um, you know appealing and that's what this book is, is in a way she she comes up with an amazing it's 10 years in Lawrence's life he didn't live very long as we know between 1915 when the, the rainbow has been um, has been uh, found guilty of, of, of obscenity to 1925 which is only five years before he dies it takes place in kind of in she sort of structures it around her, her structure for the book is is uh, Dante's Inferno. So there's Inferno, which is kind of London, Purgatorio, which is set mostly in Italy, his travels in Italy, and then Paradiso, which is set in in, um, in New Mexico. It's it, it manages not to talk about Lady Chatterley's lover. In fact, if anybody who's reading this book wanting close, close sort of line-by-line -line analysis of the novels is going to be disappointed because she, like I think I, and I know Jeff Dyer and other people who are Lawrence fans, What's great about Lawrence are the letters, the criticism, the travel books, uh, the poems in particular. Uh, and she makes an amazing case for Lawrence in this book as a kind of this febrile, creative uh, person who comes from, you know, very, very kind of ordinary working class background and becomes the kind of central figure in a kind of, I suppose, in a cult, you know, Middleton Murray, mm, uh, mm. Richard Aldington, HD. Uh, there's an extraordinary sequence, uh, a book that uh, I think is long out of print, but, uh, called the autobiography that he wrote, called the autobiography of, of Morris Magnus, this sort of con man, uh, friend of Norman Douglas's out in Italy. So there's a lot of original research into the, in the book. There's some great writing. I'm going to just read a tiny little bit from the beginning to give you the flavour. If you're interested in Lawrence, and even if you're not interested in Lawrence, I think this book would make makes the case better than anything I've I've read for why Lawrence's work is remains important and relevant now. Um, there was a great review of the book in the in the literary review who said it's a book that performs a rare by David Whitaker saying it performs a rare and laudable task of saving a writer posthumously from himself. <laughs> which I really like okay here's a little bit the Lawrence I've returned to of my own middle years this time as a biographical subject is composed of mysteries rather than certainties where once I found insight I now find bewildering levels of naivety for all his claims to prophetic vision Lawrence had little idea what was going on in the room let alone in the world his fidelity as a writer was not to the truth but to his own contradictions and reading him today is like tuning into a radio station whose frequency keeps changing. He was a modernist with an aching nostalgia for the past, a sexually repressed priest of love, a passionately religious non-believer, a critic of genius who invested in his own worst writing. Of all the Lorentzian paradoxes, however, the most arresting is that he was an intellectual who devalued the intellect, placing his faith in the wisdom of the very body that throughout his life was failing him. 
dismantle his contradictions, however, and you take away the structure of his being. D.H. Lawrence, the enemy of Freud, impressively defies psychoanalysis. So how can biography do justice to Lawrence's complexities? Just as writers of fiction might provide a disclaimer declaring that what follows is a work of imagination not based on real characters, and writers of non-fiction might provide a disclaimer declaring that what follows is not a work of imagination and very much based on real characters, I should similarly state that Burning Man is a work of non-fiction which is also a work of imagination. I should further declare that I'm unable to distinguish between Lawrence's art and Lawrence's life, which was equally a work of imagination, and nor do I distinguish Lawrence's fiction from his non-fiction. I read his novels, stories, letters, essays, poems and plays as exercises in auto-fiction, which genre he pioneered in order to get round the restrictions of genre. Art for my sake, he quipped, but he was being entirely serious. Accordingly, his letters are stories, his stories are poems, his poems are dramas, his dramas are memoirs, his memoirs are travel books, his travel books are novels, his novels are sermons, his sermons are manifestos for the novel, and his manifestos for the novel, like his writings on history, his literary criticism, and the tales in this book are accounts of what it was like to be D.H. Lawrence. I loved it. Hey, that sounds great. I'm so annoyed to say. That sounds really good. She's saying it's all one song. Yes, She's it's all one song. She's saying it's all one song, isn't she? And she does it brilliantly. Uh, she really delivers on that on that uh, sort of polemical introduction. That's great. It's reminded me of why I do love and detest Lawrence, but I can't stop being interested in him. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. You hear people shouting, come on, Billy, there. It's just too good, isn't it? It's just just right. Because the the hero, hero, one of the main characters, the protagonist of Fat City by Leonard Gardner is called Billy Tully. I'm going to ask you both first. I'd never read this book before. Uh, had either of you read this book before? Not even heard of it. I had not read it, but I was a, I had watched the film at a very impressionable age you know that kind of early in my early 20s and for a long time it was a it was one of those touchstone films that i you know that i say to people it's okay to make a film that is full of sadness and longing and and doesn't have clear kind of you know narrative payoff at the end so i was really really excited to read the book and um, i don't know what you felt nikki but it certainly it didn't disappoint me it was i think an extraordinary book I think one of the interesting thing is I, I read the book and then as soon as I finished reading the book, I then watched <laughs> the film, literally <laughs> turned the page over, put the film on. And I think if you've watched the film, you have read the book in many ways. They are very, very similar. I mean, it's, an, it's a very, very true representation, isn't it? I've I've got I've got things to say yeah, about, <laughs> about this later. <laughs> I I I. Uh, it's really interesting, Nikki. I see. I saw the film about oh, I don't know, fifteen years ago, maybe. And so my context of it was not a bo- as a boxing film. No, it was as a kind of John Huston does New Hollywood, early seventies. You know, an old Hollywood veteran takes on the the trappings of younger filmmakers, uh, and I thought the film was just terrific. Terrific film, terrific film. I'd never read the book, and then when the idea of doing this came up for Batlisted, I thought that'd be interesting. So I read the book, and then I watched the film again, and I really loved them both. And I couldn't mm. choose one or the other as the best version. Yeah. But I will say this, and I'd like to see what you think about this. You know, the novel gets talked about as the one of the greatest, if not the greatest, novels ever about boxing. And the film gets mentioned as one of the best films about boxing. And we'll talk about other boxing films. But I think there is a difference, Nikki. You're right. The film is a very faithful adaptation of the novel. And Leonard Gardner adapted it himself and yeah. wrote the script. But the film is about boxing. And the novel is not about boxing. I don't think the film is about boxing either. 
Okay, uh, great. Uh, but I think you're right. <laughs> I think it's not about boxing. That, that, that's at the heart of it. It, yeah. it. It's about so much more, isn't it? What is it about, Andy? What's the book about? <laughs> <laughs> What's it about? It's about everything that goes into why you would get into a ring and box. It's about lives that lead you to do that because you don't have the alternatives of doing anything else while simultaneously seeing that within the ring you might have something that can not deliver you to a better life, although that's part of it, but bestow self-respect, allow you to earn self-respect. And one of the things I love about the novel is, of course, it go- <laughs> why I, as a sports agnostic, <laughs> can get with it, is that it indicates that Actually, there is no Rocky story going to play out for you. You aren't going to get deliverance or redemption. The only redemption on offer to you is is maybe you get to keep going and maybe you don't even get that. That's the the nub, isn't it, is that I think Gardner said, you know, there were 80,000 people in Stockton and there were loads and loads of boxing clubs, but there were no champions. Stockton never (laughs) produced a champion. and you know the the, the usual boxing f- film or story is is a kind of redemptive story. Even the, I think the greatest boxing, real boxing movie of all time, Raging Bull, is a kind of it's a it's a pretty grim redemption. He turns you know, but it is a, it is a, it is a redemptive story, and that, I think that's one of the things I've always loved about the, the, the Fat City film is that it, it doesn't it's clearly not a redemptive story in in the same way. I mean, the thing that the film doesn't have, laying my cards on the table, is it doesn't have the central Steinbeckian sequence. Absolutely. Where Billy Tully is having to work literally with his, you know, working his fingers almost literally to the bone in the, in, in, you know, in the fields, doing, you know, cutting onions. And, 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 and there's something about the difference between the three things that drive him, the, the, the desire to be in the ring and, to, and maybe to win and to compete the desire and need to have love and companionship and 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 work to earn money it, it, i don't think i've read a book that's so that 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 manages that that sort of triple thing so so well and convincingly and but there's that, a fourth thing as well no yeah probably the, des- the desire to forget it all yeah. by drinking yourself stupid <laughs> yes yes that's true the desire to make the pain stop i guess the difference is that the boxing uh, john you what you say about boxing being work in the in the film, the bo- boxing is work. Yeah. In the book, boxing is the alternative to work. And it's fine. I, I'm not saying one is right, wrong, one is better. They're both fantastic. But it strikes me that Houston felt that he could subvert a boxing movie in a way that, Leonard Gardner in the yeah, novel includes boxing as part of a, a a a selection of the lives of working people. This is the author Leonard Gardner talking about what originally inspired the book and the title of the book. I grew up in Stockton, California, which was a very good fight town, and uh, only one guy that I can recall ever got up to the point of getting a world championship fight. There were some hard-fought fights there in Stockton, and quite a number of the fighters actually were farm workers. One of our stars was a Filipino fighter. He'd work out in the fields, you know. He was known to be an expert asparagus cutter, so during asparagus season he'd be out there working. There were people like that who weren't making big money but were making fair money and maybe had jobs on the side. That's what my title, Fat City, actually was referring to. The good times up at the top. I'm in Fat City. And it was it was just what my guys would hope for, what they were aspiring to. And it was it was just like smoke. It was just this this dream that they couldn't reach. No no heavyweight championship of the world is gonna be on offer to these guys, however well they do. Yeah. It's not just about sport, as you've said, but it's about mediocrity, isn't it? And actually, Andy, this is why I'm guessing one of the reasons why you like this, right? No one is that good at boxing. Even the sort of young upstart, Ernie Munger, isn't that good at boxing, right? Do you think 
that books about mediocrity are more interesting than books about champions. <laughs> <laughs> what a great question. Tell you what, well, I think I'm going to bounce that immediately to my colleague, John Mitchinson, who has read more boxing books than I have. There is something, not, not my favourite boxing book, but it's a great line, although it is a disputed line. Joyce, Joyce Carol Oates on boxing. She said, boxing isn't a metaphor, it's the thing itself. And I, I've, always, I've always clung to that. <laughs> Richard Ford also claimed that he said that the novelist also said that he said it first. <laughs> so oh, it's a, okay, a, yeah. <laughs> literally, a, a literally slugfest over that quote. Seconds out. But it is true <laughs> that, that that is something about boxing. There is something particularly about boxing which is, you know, the, the old kind of Roman versus Greek sport, that Romans, Roman sports tend to be, you know, uh, kind of games, but team, team sports and Greek sports tend to be individuals. If you are, uh, and, you know, that some of the great write, sports writing, I think I, I was looking at Al Liebling's book, this, The Sweet Science, is because the, the the brutality of boxing, the fact that two two human beings are attempting to knock one another unconscious in a ring, um, it, it's the sort of the and to not do that, you know, you you were, you were talking before, Nikki, you're saying about moving around and that the, the skill and the art of boxing, which is why it's known as the sweet science, that that it's it's as much about defence as it is as, as about attack. It's as much about not being hit as it is hitting. Yes, it's very easy to see how that gets metaphorically applied to all kinds of things. But having boxed a little bit as a kid, and, Did you? and my my grandfather and my mm. father both boxed, there's nothing, nothing prepares you, nothing in, that I've ever done prepares you for the the the, the, the adrenaline, both horror mm. and attraction of being in a ring and having, and when somebody hits you and hits you really hard, you know, as I say, when you when he hits you, the, the great line about Tyson, you stay hit. It's very, very, very primal. I mean, I, I see only way you, you, you're having to confront. <laughs> you're literally having to confront existential reality because if you don't move, you're going to get hit again, and you don't want if you get hit and put on your back. Even you know, we were. I was a kid. You know, we had big, puffy gloves, and but it's it's knowing that somebody's trying to hit you in the head. It's not what most of our life is like. <laughs> It might metaphorically feel like that, but actually when somebody's trying to do it, it's... Yeah, so yeah, yeah. I think the mediocrity <laughs> is... Going back to your point about mediocrity, is that everybody, most boxers who get into the ring, by definition, are going to be mediocre. They're not going to be great champions. Most, most boxers aren't champions. Uh, it's why people would train and do that and want to do that who aren't... And that's, what, that's the fascinating thing, isn't it, that this book and film are both well, about. Yeah, I mean, I would say, Nikki, that that in a sense, Raging Bull is also a film about yeah. mediocrity. You know, you can be a champion and you can still be an arsehole. Those, those, both those things can happen, even though there might be understandable reasons why. You know, it made me think of Johnny. It made me think of Last Train to Memphis and Careless Love by yes. Peter Goralnik, which we talked about on Backlisted. You know, there's a champion, Elvis Presley. We get to see him win the title fight and then we get to hang around while a series of terrible things happen <laughs> to him. And he, some of which are of his doing and others, are, uh, others of which aren't. When we were preparing for this episode, I was thinking about Jonathan Rendell's book. Now, Jonathan Rendell's book, which is called This Bloody Mary this is the I Last own, Thing yeah. I Own, which I think was published in the 90s and... Um, Rendell died like probably about 10 years ago, maybe a bit less than that. And, you know, had a, something of a reputation. That's a really great book that nobody talks about anymore. This Bloody Mary is the last thing I own. And that's about the relationship between <laughs> mediocrity, knowing you're mediocre, pretending you're not mediocre, by pretending you're not mediocre, becoming something other than mediocre. <laughs> so by telling yourself your own myth, you you can potentially you can potentially lift yourself out of mediocrity. We've got a clip from the from the film, which seems to sum this up. This is uh, the young fighter Ernie Munger. He's backstage in the dressing room before his first big fight, and. Uh, He's getting ready to go out there and he's talking to one of the other fighters who've been brought along for the night. Who's about 15 years old, isn't he? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, he, he's he's supposedly legal, but then somebody goes, "Hey, he's fifteen, right?" <laughs> so you're you're, and this is exactly that. It's like, can you talk yourself into being a winner? Here we go. Hope I didn't leave my fight in the bedroom. Can't go tell Ruben this, but I was out getting me a little last night. Hope I'm in shape. I was too. But that don't make no difference. It don't matter if you're dead drunk. You got two hands. You can beat this dude. I don't care who he is. It's all in your mind. I hope so. Hope it never done nothing. It's wanting to do it. You gotta wanna win so bad you can taste it. If you wanna win bad enough, you win. There ain't no way in hell this dude's gonna beat me. Cause he's too old, I'm too fast, I'm gonna be all over him. I'm gonna kick his ass so bad every time he takes a bite of food tomorrow, he's gonna think of me. He's gonna know he's been in the fight. Cause I'm gonna hit him with everything. I'm not just gonna beat that mother, I'm gonna kill him. You wanna know what makes a good fighter? What's that? It's believing in yourself, the will to win. You wanna kick ass, you kick ass. Okay, right. You don't want to kick ass. You want to get your own ass whooped. Look, I want to kick ass. Don't worry about that. You got to want to kick ass so bad there ain't no manager, trainer, peel that can do it for you. I want to kick ass as bad as you do. Well, then go on out there and kick ass. All right. First bout, Ernie Munger. <laughs> so the point is, listeners, they both lose their fights. <laughs> um, there's no, even talking a good game, right, is not going to win you a good game. And that's, that's, I love that sequence because he kind of amps it up a bit from the book um, because it's, it's the, that's the only bit of, I could have been a contender, you know, it's the only bit of, of that kind of motivational boxing speak uh, in, in the book. Uh, the the rest of it is 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 incredibly I think incredibly subtle, and maybe at this time I might read. There's a, an amazing bit where Billy Tully gets hit, um, and his world his vision of the world literally splits in two. Which go on read it. <laughs> do you want to give us a bit? I'll do the blurb in a minute, but give us a bit of the prose. Yeah, it's just I mean just going back to this thing about what's it like being hit. This is this this I felt was <laughs> this I felt was was pretty good on his back. He's been hit, right? He's been hit. He's he, this is against uh, Arcadio Lucero, who's this extraordinarily kind of brilliantly performed in the film as well. But it's great, kind of tight. The sense of you know these guys who for a living get hit, go and hit people and hit hit for a living. You know, it's it's what they do. It's their job. He's been knocked down early in the in the fight, on his back, struggling to stay upright on horizontal legs. He looked up at the lights and the brown and blue gathered drapery way up at the apex of the ceiling where a giant gold tassel hung, the whole scene shattered by a zigzag diagonal line like a crack in a window. He did not remember rising or how he got through the round. All he rem remembered were the lights, the gold tassel and the shattered drapery. Then the eye-smarting shock of ammonia in Lucero's corner where he had followed him after the bell and where Reuben had come to lead him back to his own stool. The zigzag line cut the ropes. Cold water cascaded over his head. He felt the drag of a cotton swab through a wound over his eye. When he looked up at Reuben's face, he could not see his chin. There was a sparkling vagueness to everything, and pain shifted from the top of his head to his temples and the base of his skull. The ammonia passed again under his nose, and now he could see Reuben's chin, but it was off to the side of his face. Uh, that's probably enough. I mean, it's that's that's uh, he, he gets back up and, and keep, continues fighting. But it's just a, uh, I think it's just. Can you hear? Can you hear how spare the style yeah. is? Right? Can you hear how many jabs <laughs> of single syllable yeah. words there are in that? It's so plain, but but so rhythmical and balanced. It that it's ter such terrific um, prose. I think, and and you know it does. Like you say, he does describe the, the the boxing with real precision, but the 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 point of the book is your yeah. I mean, you, you know, you're, poor Tully, you know, you're in this guy's mixed up head for for a lot of the book, um, and the fighting, in a funny kind of way, is is as close as he gets to a kind of track that that vision of the crack in reality is the closest as he get he gets to a sort of transcendent experience. But as you said, it isn't all about boxing, and to think this is a boxing book would that might turn some people yeah. off it. And I think that's really important. It's not, you don't have to be a fan of boxing or like boxing at all to enjoy this book. Why don't we listen to Leonard Gardner himself talking about the ways in which the book is, where boxing is part of the book, but it's not a book about boxing. Everything seemed to be included, you know, like you wanted fair pay for farm workers and you know, get out of Vietnam and all of that. 
I felt devoted to the cause, you know. And I certainly was against exploitation of farm workers, and I still am, and it still goes on. I had a bit of a social purpose as I wrote, and I think that helped me choose my material and you know, kept me going, you know, until I got it finished. Some of these guys were just very strong men who could work all day out in the sun doing stoop labor and then come to the gym, knock each other around, you know, get in shape for their fights. I got interested in writing when I was about 14, and I remember there'd be a lot of really poor people on the streets, farm workers, in the late afternoon would be by the hundreds just standing on the sidewalk with nothing to do, watching the cars go by. It was a big part of the life of my little town, and I wanted to write about it since I was in my teens. At 17, I started to work in a gas station. Just happened to be in the skid row, but I knew a kid that worked there, and when they needed another attendant, he told me about it, and I got the job. Then I got acquainted with winos who would come and stand around the station, and I wanted to write about winos. And when I started writing Fat City, I put a lot of pieces together that I had, you know, collected and thought of writing about someday. That's great. I mean, I don't know about you, Nick, but for me, that is that is the thing that really the the contextualizing of boxing, yeah, the contextualizing of hard labor, the contextualizing of the relationships, and the contextualizing of drinking. No one thing is contextualizing anything else. No. That's the point. That's why it's such a great book because because you're being given a snapshot of a way of life that that uh, that facilitates all those things. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but for the for for very much worse rather than better. When you take away, you know, I always talk about the feeling you get in a book, and the feeling, the sort of memory of this book is definitely in the fields, picking. Yeah. you know, waiting. He he does God, this brilliant yeah. sets this brilliant scene of, I'm looking for some work. I'm going to tap up whatever bus driver is looking for farm labourers, and then they go and spend a, a really really rough day in the field, and it's hideous. And then you go and box. And that feels to me like the sort of the scene setting of the book more than anything, more than in the ring or anything yeah. like that. In that, uh, in that excellent Paris uh, Review interview that they did for 50 years of, of um, Fat City, uh, the, the guy who introduces it says, to say Fat City is about boxing, we would like saying that In Search of Lost Time is about parties in Paris or Moby Dick is about whaling. So I, I think... Yeah. And I think that's exactly. I think that is exactly true. It's 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 a it's about. It's just. I mean, you know, Stockton was his town. He's writing about his town and what people's lives and aspirations were. You know, they were full of, uh, you know, full of Mexicans and 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 people who were, who were working, at absolutely kind of sh- shitty jobs and then going and training in the evenings. One of the things I noticed in the novel is the way that Billy Tully wants to give the best possible account of himself in the ring, but he kind of doesn't care what he does in the field. You know, he's prepared to cut corners in the field, not literally, but you know what I mean. He's prepared to be a bit lazy and kind of to, to you know, he doesn't want to be defeated by the fact that he's competitive with other men, the other men who are working harder than he is. He doesn't like to see that. But when it comes down to it, where is a place that he can be proud? That is one of the things about that character. Well, he can't be proud in the fields and he can't be proud in a bar and he can't be proud in the home. terrible hotel room that he lives in and he can't be proud in a relationship. The only place he could ever be proud, potentially, was in the boxing ring. Yeah. But that seems to have been denied him repeatedly. It, there's that very first scene where he meets Omar and Earl. Earl, who's with Omar at the bar, having her screaming in his ear all the time. He just says, I don't claim to be nothing more than I am. You maybe can fight. I'm an upholsterer. <laughs> and then Billy Tully goes, that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One man's yeah, got yeah, muscles, yeah, yeah, another's yeah. got steel. It all comes out the same. And I, I think that, that sort of sense of entitlement when he says to Omar later on when he kind of is you know you can depend on me it's like weird sense of honor that he has but he's so unreliable he's totally he's unreliable he's totally unreliable <laughs> is it worth setting up the characters a bit because yeah. i think we've been talking about them is it worth sort of reading the blurb let me read the blurb so this is the this is the the 
the jacket copy on the US first edition. Our context for talking about it is it's the great boxing novel, but, it, you know, that's not how it, well, when it's published, it doesn't have that framework around it. So let's see what they said. So the jacket copy starts with this quote. This is the best first novel I've read in several years. A beautifully balanced piece of work, satisfyingly complex in structure with a spare musical style. A great deal lies beneath the surface of this book. As with all first-class fiction, the only way to find out what is to read it. So writes Frank Conroy, the author of Stop Time in Praise of Fat City, and his statement is typical of the remarkable outpouring of enthusiasm for Leonard Gardner's extraordinary first novel. A few of the many comments from noted writers who read the novel in advance of publication appear on the back flaps, <laughs> wasting no time directing you there. Anyway, it goes on to say, Fat City is a novel about the indestructibility of hope, the anguish and comedy of the human condition. It tells the story of two young boxers out of Stockton, California, Ernie Munger and Billy Tully, one in his late teens, the other just turning 30, whose seemingly parallel lives intersect for a time. Set in an ambience of glittering dreams and drab realities, it tells of the two fighters' struggles to escape the confinements of their existence and of the men and women in their world. Fat City is a novel about the sporting life like no other ever written, without melodrama or false heroics, written with a truthfulness that is once painful and beautiful. Fat City won the Joseph Henry Jackson Award as a work in progress several years ago, and since then, Leonard Gardner has been supported in his writing by a Saxton Fellowship, a McDowell Colony Fellowship, and a grant from the National Foundation for the Arts and Humanities. He lives in Mill Valley, California, and then there are quotes on the flat from Joan Didion and, and The Great and the Good. I mean, I, I think that's a, f a really pretty great yeah, really blurb, good. actually. Really good. You know, because best boxing novel, as Nikki just said, I probably wouldn't have read this. Why I, you know, that's not going to be for me. No. You know, if they wanted to pitch it to me, they should have said best novel about loneliness and failure, and then I would have been all, all over it. <laughs> Nikki, was it what you were expecting? Yes, I suppose it was because I don't think you would have picked. And it's just worth saying, you guys <laughs> did pick this book, which is unusual. Normally, the guests pick the book, um, but I don't think it, you would have picked something that was a. Uh, a triumph over adversity novel. I think this is a, you know, a kind of pain and mediocrity and, a, you know, yeah. loss and kind of uh, alcohol and depression and kind of... The triumph uh, of adversity, that's what it is. <laughs> a deep look into kind of masculinity in the, uh, in the 50s. That feels like, that feels like more, more on point, I'd say. But do you think it was dated in that respect? I didn't feel dated to me at all, did it? Or did it? I think there were elements that were dated. You know, the the, the bits around the language around race and uh, the female characters, which are all the not just the female characters, but the the me, the men's opinion of the female characters felt of their time, and definitely the the languages language around race felt of its time. Um, that doesn't mean you can't read it, you know. No, no, I would say both those both those things are snapshots of the characters mm -hmm. he was writing about rather than his take. I, actually, it's funny you should say that. Yeah. Let's hear another clip from the film because here's a clip of the characters played by Stacey Keach and Susan Tyrell. They're in a bar when we join them. And the thing that Nikki was talking about is perfectly illustrated here. You know, they've had a few drinks, that's the point. They've had a few drinks. Marrying him was the biggest mistake of my life. He had unnatural desires. He did? White races in its decline. Started downhill in 1492 when Columbus discovered syphilis. What do you want to do? White men are animals. Oh, no, we're not so bad. White man is a vermin of the earth. Hey, come on, that's a lie. Don't tell me what to do. I don't care who hears me. I know I'm making a nuisance for myself. Oh, All those goddamn Mexicans sitting there. Wait, they don't know who their real friends are. Hey, with them. What are you going on about? Don't you tell me. What, you take your hands off me. Hey, you, you are liable to get backhanded right off that stool. If you you see if I care one bit. That's all I need. You go ahead and it'll make it feel so good. Come on, get it out of your system. Go on. If it'll make you feel good, punch me in the face. Oh, 
Reminds me of when we took my uh, quite young son to a screening of whatever happened to Baby Jane, and I have a clear memory of uh, us watching it and laughing our heads off, and my son turning to me, who's quite young, he's about ten, and saying, "Is this funny?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I watch Fat City, I find it really yeah. funny. I mean, it's very painful, and but the performances of Stacey Keach and Susan Tyrell there are so um large but true right they get she's, together after that scene she, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that, that's but the... she said she said she's playing a she's not she her argument was I'm not acting large I'm playing the part of a woman who acts large Right, who is who is encouraged by her drinking and her insecurity to to kind of, you know, dramatize any situation in which she finds herself. Um, it's interesting. Gardner was worried that she was a little over the top in the role because he obviously, I mean, quite uniquely, he were he was he was there right the way through shooting with uh, Houston. It's interesting. Fifty years later, when he he's reflecting on it in, in, in the Paris Review, he said, "No, actually, now I, I look back and I see the genius of what she was doing." And it's interesting because she, neither she nor Stacey Keach were known really as film actors at that stage. They were both they were both kind of classical, classically trained stage actors. And obviously, Jeff Bridges, I think it was his second movie. Yeah. So I with the, the characters in the film, there's like it feels so there's. The, the two boxers, there's the trainer uh, and there's um, Omar, who's, uh, in fact, there's two women. They both have uh, partners. Um, but it feels like there's a sort of divide. There's the people who can really act and then there's everyone else. I don't know if you feel like that. There's a lot of people who aren't as good as the core team. Yeah, but that's part of the texture of yeah. it, isn't it? I mean, I, I, the, the idea that he that Houston was casting people to to make it feel authentic. I mean, it does feel authentic, right? I mean, it, you don't feel you're watching actors, maybe apart from Susan Tyrell. <laughs> I don't know, but it's such a, such a fantastic performance. It's, it's, as, close, it's right? as close as Houston got to Casavetes. You know, that kind of very naturalistic, semi-improvised feel. The, book, the film definitely, I mean, I don't think it is, in any way, semi-improvised. And, you know, you're talking about Ruben Luna, who is the coach. That's another great performance by Nicholas Colasanta, who, um, who is a staple. I mean, he was, in, he was in Raging Bull. But he's also, he's coach in Cheers. <laughs> yeah, he is. Um, so yeah, he is. A, early audition for that role. I think that slight feeling uh, that you you get there, Nicky, is, is, is right, that the, the minor characters definitely feel like they're, they're, they're just... They're just ordinary people who've been who've been dragged in and given lines. It's um that doesn't uh, doesn't interfere with my pleasure in the in the film. I think it gives it a kind of authenticity which it might otherwise not have. But the feeling that those people are all trapped, that's one of the things that the book is about. The book or the film, it doesn't matter really. We haven't really talked about Ernie, mm. you know, who's the young fighter who wears his way out. Even if he won a few fights, where's his, where's his way out? It's not that he's trapped by his behaviour necessarily. He's trapped by the society in which, he's, in which he's growing up. He's trapped by America in the period that we're talking about. And to some extent, I don't think it has dated. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, these are the things you can aspire to. Well, they're pretty low rent. And if they don't work, what do you got? You've got boxing or you've got drinking or you've got... Yeah, will he escape the, the 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 sort of the spiral of despair that Tully Billy Tully's in? Why does Leonard Gardner set those two stories in parallel? Why are they there? One you have one the sort of aging boxer and one the new hope, who isn't neither of them are very good. <laughs> um, they both have relationship problems in that one doesn't want to be the young hope doesn't really want to be in a relationship, and all of a sudden she's pregnant and they're married. But so so why are they juxtaposed together? 
I th- my my take, John, is that that they're you know they're different ends of the race. They but they both think there's a way way out. The point of the book is there is no way out. <laughs> you know, it's so fantastically against the grain of the idea that you know you would you would fight your way out of the ghetto yeah. and you would achieve self-respect and the love of others it's saying well no that's just that's just not gonna happen I mean, you know you can have a few good fights but at the end of it you'll still be living on your own in a can i could i just read a little bit would yeah, you, yeah great would you, is that okay so this is from the we're talking about billy tully he's moved in with the character that we just heard in that clip this is the end of chapter 16. And if you imagine they're together in that bar, we just heard them in. They sat in silence, all facing ahead, while an overhead fan with oar-like blades revolved slowly through the heat, angry. Tully frowned a while into the mirror so that nobody would think he was stupid enough to be happy with Omar. Soon Esteban's woman began to sigh with obvious impatience, and so they all went down the street. Tully pressed against her as they entered a packed bar where a bald-headed man with sideburns and a blonde woman with a worn, pretty face were picking electric guitars and singing, Why don't you love me like you used to do? Why do you treat me like a worn-out shoe? My hair is still curly and my eyes are still blue. Why don't you love me like you used to do? That night in the room... Tully experienced a desperation he was afraid he could not contain. He felt as if his mind might shatter under the stress of Omar's presence. He could not bring himself to speak, and when she spoke, he could not listen. At the sound of her voice, he felt he had to get away. Yet because he could not love her, she seemed more defenceless and he more bound. As assuagement for the loss of his liberty, he longed for a closer attachment. In bed beside her, he lay motionless, repelled by the thought of contacting her with even a toe. But her hand sought him. Though he did not yield, it moved with proprietary assurance until he turned, his foot tangling in the sheet and pulling it from their bodies as he thrust his leg between hers with the savagery of one administering punishment. His exertions made no discernible impression. Afterwards, as Omar slept, He was so excruciatingly aware of his structure, of each troubled limb, of each restless joint, that he longed to thrash about in search of some position of ease. But he moved slowly, carefully, in order not to disturb her. As he inched up an arm, straightened a leg, his muscles seemed to pulse on their bones in an agony of confinement. He was balked. His life seemed near its end. In four days, he would be 30. (laughs) (laughs) So good. It's brilliant, isn't it? Isn't that a fantastic writing, you know? And spare, like we were saying earlier, but also what a great book, both of you, this is about the body. It is. What does the body give us in these different situations, sex or fighting or running or working? How are we defined by our physical capabilities yeah he it's 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 that thing he he's he likes i mean you know you're you're going back to your question nikki about the 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 the, why these guys i mean it's it's the struggle thing is they're both they're both they're both he said somewhere i think in that interview struggle is dramatic and that people who've got nothing have to the, the very act of just keeping alive is struggle it's just a very very um I, I I think his, you know, he does find the poetry in the gutter and all that. He does, you know, he's such a beautiful and 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 exact writer. But the, I I, I was struck by that thing in, in the blurb saying about the you know the what was it something about hope being you know indestructible. I don't know. I don't know what I don't know that that's <laughs> no, what Fat City you... tells you. <laughs> I wish it did. So let me just give you Leonard Gardner's biography. Yeah, really interesting. And then I've got a little, I've got a little fact that I'd, I reckon John Mitchinson doesn't know that he's going to lose his mind over. So let's see what happens. So Leonard Gardner was born in Stockton, 
uh, he he his stories appeared in the Paris Review and Esquire and Brick magazine, uh, the boxing magazine. His screen adaptation of Fat City was made into a film in 1972, and then after that, he worked as a writer for independent film and television. And he he won prizes, uh, including a Peabody Award for his work on NYPD Blue. And in 2008, he was the recipient of the A.J. Liebling Award, who you mentioned earlier, John, uh, in relation to the sweet science, which was given by the Boxing Writers Association of America. And he's still with us, which is brilliant. He's in his 90s and he's... Technically he's, claimed, he's, claims he's still, he's still, still writing us. a novel. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. Do you, John, do you know who recruited uh, Leonard Gardner to work on NYPD yeah, Blue? Who was it, Andy? Uh, tell us. It was David Milch, who was teaching Fat City, who taught Fat City as a, a, a set text when he was a professor at... Uh, and and if listeners don't know, who David is Milch David is Milch? David Milch uh, was the showrunner of NYPD Blue, but more famously the, and... the showrunner of Andy and my favourite long-form drama, Deadwood. Uh... Deadwood, yeah. the, guy the guy who, who created, created Deadwood. Deadwood. Yeah was heavily influenced by Fat City. He, and actually, Johnny, can't you can't you yeah. see the link between the two De- things? Definitely. That, you know, the sense of two enclosed communities with no way out yeah. uh, and the, the uh, idiosyncrasies of the people who have to find space within them. That's really what both those things are about. I was so And also that kind of, that. you know, the, 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 the language, you know, Milch's, Milch's kind of love for that sort of almost Shakespearean kind of soliloquy, which I have to say, you know, Gardner. It, it, I'm really struck that two, two, the two writers, Milch was the one, and the other one is obviously Dennis Johnson, um, who was totally fell under the, the spell. I mean, he said that it was the... Fat City was the book that made him want to be a writer, and you can you can you can sort of definitely see. I mean, it's it's a weird thing, isn't it? We, I'm, and you're going to go on to this, but you would have thought that somebody who'd written a a book of this quality would write other books. <laughs> mm. Why didn't he? I must just say this: this the clips we've heard of Leonard Gardner are taken from an interview uh, from 2015 with Max Larkin, which is included on the indicator edition dvd of the film of oh, fat right, city great. and the edition is really really great and the whole interview with leonard gardner is fascinating i wish we had time to include more of it but anyway to answer your question john and nikki here is um leonard gardner has just been asked why given fat city was shortlisted for the national book award and was praised by all these people why didn't he go on to write more well i don't really know my agent seemed to know how these things affect people. He seemed to feel that I probably felt I had to follow it with something as good or better, and that froze me up. I let enough time go by where then I was desperate for money, too. And uh, people might think there's big money in novels, but I didn't find that to be so. And I wasn't even offered... Uh, in advance on my next one. If I'd asked for it, I probably would have got it. I don't know. But I got the movie offered to write the screenplay for Fat City. So I took it. And, uh, and then there were other movie offers. I worked on a couple of other films. And uh, time was getting away from me. And I kept needing money. And and I, I worked on NYPD Blue, and uh, I could have given you this interview with the understanding that you wouldn't ask me why I didn't write another novel, because I can't answer it. And it's painful to always have to feel that you're a combination of failure and success. I mean, my book now is getting a lot of attention, so I'm successful in some way, and Whatever in the other, I won't say I'm a failure. I was really moved by that, actually. Mm. Really... He's very much like one of his own characters. <laughs> you know, do you read Fat City as a prediction yeah. of of how Leonard Gardner's life panned out? Or do you read it as you could see it differently? You could see, well, you've got to have your championship bout. You've got to write mm. a novel as good as Fat City. And I think Leonard Gardner says something like, well, you know, 
I, I've got this to show for it, you know. You know, it's almost like somebody getting the jitters, right? Like a fighter getting the jitters. Like Simone Biles deciding she can't yeah. perform because she, if she goes onto the mat not feeling mm. she can succeed, she's likely to fail and and be terribly injured. So, you know, that boxing metaphor, writing as boxing, that that feels strong here as well. Hey, I've got a quiz for you. Would you yeah, like a quiz? Not? Yeah. Is it about one book authors? <laughs> well, no, it's not, Nikki, because that wouldn't be fair, would it? We could, I mean, I, <laughs> we were talking about one book authors. Like, so Leonard Gardner is in the same category as uh, Emily Bronte yeah. in that respect. <laughs> well, they're not often compared. But, Mary Shelley. But, no, it's not about one book authors. No, John Huston made the film yeah. of Fat City. And he uh, made a career out of making films from seemingly unfilmable novels. And uh, several of which we've probably talked about on Backlisted before. But I was going to give you guys, this is, you know, in your bout, you can have the choice of the terms of engagement, which is this. You can either, I can either give you the name of the film and you have to tell me the author, or I'll give you the author and you have to tell me the name of the film directed by John Huston. I only know one other film directed by him. So, yeah. John, you go first. Oh, go on then. What I want is the name of the film directed by John Huston based on the book by this author. Dashiell Hammett, 1941. The Maltese Falcon. That was the only one I knew. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Nikki, Herman Melville. Moby Dick. Yes, Yay! Moby well Dick. Yes, well she's done. right. Oh. One all. Okay. All right. And John Mitchinson, I'm going to ask you for the exact title of the film that John Huston made. And the book was by God. <laughs> <laughs> can I, I can guess this one? <laughs> Go on then. <laughs> Did he do a film called The Bible? Oh, you're close, but you're oh. not right. It's an adaptation of the book of Genesis. Genesis. Mm. But what's it called? Oh. Either of you? All About Eve? No. <laughs> that's good to see where you did good, but yeah. no it's the it was called the bible in the oh, beginning no, no, brilliant all right uh so i'll give this to nikki because it's a very famous film it's it's and it's based on it starred michael Caine and sean connery and it was based on a novel by roger kipling michael kipling what, and it starred Michael Caine and Sean Connery and it was made in the 70s and it's on telly it all the time in the afternoons and it's about uh, keeping his head in a box. I don't know. And a bag. <laughs> Pass. It's the man, the man who, who would be, be king. king. Uh, the man who would be king. I'm going to ask Mitchinson now, which, because I know you love it, which story by James Joyce did Houston make a, an adaptation of in the film? The Dead. From, from Dublin, Dublin is yeah, the yeah. final film he made, an incredible yeah, film, film. If, if anybody's seen that. Uh, well, I'm going to call... Yeah. No, I'm going to call that a draw. Yeah. Thank you, guys. The final bell sounds. We must return to our separate corners and declare a unanimous decision in favour of Leonard Gardner. Uh, and thanks, as always, to Nikki Birch, uh, both guest and producer today, for being on hand with the sponge and the ammonia and to Unbound for the glasses of cream <laughs> sherry. <laughs> you can download all 143 previous episodes, 143, plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid for advertising. Your generosity helps us do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early. And for the price of two pickled pig's feet at the Harbour Inn, a lot listeners. Yeah, or, or, a, or a night at the hotel. We didn't get to mention it. <laughs> or for a bag of onions. Yeah, or a bag of onions. <laughs> yeah, a bag of lot onions. Lot listeners yeah. get two extra lot listed a month. Our own culture gym 
where we skip, spar and pummel our way through the books, films and music we love in order to put on an <laughs> exhibition match for our loyal fans. <laughs> and yet with no escape. <laughs> Lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. So in the red corner, this week's batch roll call, Isabel Pan, Gary Ilsley, Susan Baird, Liz Wallman. We're also delighted to welcome Angela Brown and Ian Neal to our Guild of Master Storytellers, the highest tier in the Batlisted Firmament. Thank you both for your generosity and to all our patrons. Huge thanks for enabling the three of us to continue to do what we love and enjoy. Well, listen, we're taking a break uh, for the rest of August, although if you're on the Patreon, uh, lot listed will continue as usual. And actually, if you're just a normal patron subscriber... You'll still get lock listed too, aren't we? We're giving them to every Patreon subscriber. Yeah. So so there'll be there'll be a show a week until September, and then we're back with uh, backlisters. We may even invite guests back uh, <laughs> from September onwards. So we 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 look forward to rejoining you then. Um, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks yeah. for your support. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. So see you next time. See, see you in September, everybody. everybody. Bye bye. If you prefer to listen to backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted as well as getting the show early you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call lock listed which is andy me and nikki talking about the books music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight